0: I'm Bill Mitchell and this is When Dating Hurts, a podcast dedicated to my daughter Kristen and all women taken from us before their time by the epidemic known as dating violence. I will speak with authorities in domestic violence, law enforcement professionals, families of victims and survivors, and survivors themselves. This is an interview with Aaron, a remarkable survivor who lives in the Midwestern United States. Aaron and I connected through Janine Latus, the author of the book, If I'm Missing or Dead. Our interview was so full, I decided it needed to come to you in two parts. This is the second and final part of my conversation with Aaron.
1: Yeah, he essentially murdered murdered one of the dogs and was on his way to murdering the other out of sheer neglect. And he is remarried, and his wife is just as cruel and punished the dogs for being mine. She hates that I exist and that he was married before, so she, would, she treated them just as badly. These are all reports that I'm getting from my 7-year-old son. Rewind, I suppose, to getting married. My oldest sister, who I'm closest to, wrote to me before the wedding with a very extensive letter all the reasons why i shouldn't marry him i was completely drowning in delusion that no he's changed i promise he's completely different fortunately i had so many wedding things to focus on that i wasn't miserable anymore so i translated that into being happy in the relationship but really i was just really busy And so he didn't have the opportunity to torture me, essentially. He also really liked the attention that getting married brought him with, you know, engagement parties and bachelor parties and all of those things and people wanting to be involved.
0: So I picture this kind of going to Justice of the Peace, slipping in the door and slipping out the other door and the witnesses, you don't even know. But this was like a real, this is a real wedding ceremony. This was
1: a real wedding. Yeah, he... Because he fits that profile of the charming narcissist, where when we were out in public...
0: He wanted the uh, photo ops to look good, right? Yes. Yeah. I guess he's putting on his finest tuxedo, maybe, or at least nice clothes. Yes. So it looked good from a distance. Absolutely. When we were out in public,
1: he was incredible. He was so kind and would hold my hand, have his arm around me, never say anything cruel but behind closed doors he was constantly doing things that completely went against everything he was trying to project to the rest of the world but i would i would come to learn later about the cycle of abuse and you know the honeymoon stage just going around in that circle over and over again of the forgiveness the honeymoon stage the incident the progression the, the he was a uh, a gift giver when he had done something to hurt me. He mm-hmm. would always reaffirm that by saying, see, look at what good care I take of you. And, and being with me means you get nice perfume like this. And, and wanting to make sure I knew that it was all worth it if I could just hold on for the good bits. And that's what I kept doing.
0: It's a tough merry-go-round, but uh, there's candy on the other side, I guess. Yes. That, so. You helped him study for the EMT. Did he pass it? He
1: did eventually pass. Okay. And he blamed a lot of the abuse actually on school and that he was stressed out. And I just needed to be patient with him. And it would have gotten better had I held on longer.
0: Yeah, it has to be your fault somehow. I got that. We
1: had a big, well, big to me, it was 100 people, a barn wedding. Mm -hmm. I did everything myself. I saw him during the ceremony. And right after the ceremony, they whisked us away to take pictures. And for the first time, In almost eight years, he leaned over and whispered into my ear, you look beautiful. And I was so shocked. And I looked at him, and Uh. he goes, for once. (laughs) And I was instantly devastated and thought, what have I done? I'm cringing. What have I done? But there was a big party to do now. And, Uh. yeah, I didn't see him for the rest of the day. He was drinking with his buddies.
0: Working the crowd. Uh
1: Uh-huh. So... I really enjoyed the wedding because I didn't spend any time with him. I saw friends and family I hadn't seen in almost a decade. And it was joyful. And I think that's the biggest reason I went through with it is it was this amazing excuse to remake these connections with people I thought I had completely lost. Yes. And they showed up, except my sister. She said, no, my oldest sister. She wrote that letter. I said, you're wrong. And she said, well, I can't watch you do it. So she did not come. Uh,
0: uh, uh, uh.
1: And it was honestly only a couple of weeks after the wedding that I found out I was pregnant. And what is bizarre to me and, you know, wherever your faith might lead you or the universe intervening or anything like that, I had been told since I was 14 that it was medically impossible for me to have children. Oh, and you know there was there was no type of prevention in place, and it had been almost eight years. And then right after we get married, and I sign that seal and make it official, I have a baby coming, and that shifted everything into perspective. Like, look at the world I'm bringing a child into. How could I protect him from this? I couldn't even protect the dogs from this. How am I going to protect it?
0: I was about to say, this is like a human now, not a puppy.
1: Yes. Exactly. Exactly. Oh,
0: my goodness.
1: And he was atrocious throughout the pregnancy, everything I did.
0: How did he handle it when you made the announcement to him that we're going to have a baby? How did he handle that?
1: You know, I was shaking because I had been told I could not get pregnant but I also couldn't understand why I was feeling so lousy and just so sick all the time and on a whim took a pregnancy test like almost as a joke to myself because I desperately desperately wanted to be a mother but I'd always been told I couldn't be a mother when you're in the type of relationship I was in you completely stop caring about yourself or what happens to you so I never even considered the possibility of having to make sure somebody else wouldn't suffer
0: yes yeah, you had to become a protector. Yeah. Mm.
1: So when it was positive, I told him, you know, I'm pregnant. He goes, told you you could have a baby. Like, there was no joy. There was no reaction other than told you so. I was ecstatic to become a mother while simultaneously being terrified of what that meant in the long run. And unfortunately, all of my fears were legitimate as to how he would end up treating a baby When the baby was born, he couldn't be bothered to help with anything. He would only hold him in public for the, look at how great I am, photo ops, like you had said.
0: What a nice new daddy.
1: Yeah. So he had a very large family on his dad's side, and there were always huge, huge family gatherings, and they would just parade the baby around. When I was pregnant, I was like, "He's, he's mine, he's just mine, and I can protect him. But once he was out, he was not mine anymore he was like a trophy that was passed around this gigantic family until we got back home and then he couldn't be bothered i was up all hours of the night but then he would he would get very angry that i was giving the baby more attention than him even accused me of i I was breastfeeding the baby and he was accusing me of sexually provoking him and taunting him by breastfeeding the child and he was like well how long until you can do things again I'm like, well, the doctor said six weeks, and he's like, "Well, then you got to stop taking your tits out, essentially." And I'm like, I have to feed the baby, and he's like, "What do you think? What about me? What do you think it's doing to me?" I'm like, I have to feed the baby. I would. Was there, he just had so many, so many rules. I wasn't allowed to sleep on the couch because I was too heavy and I'd hurt the couch. But I wasn't mm. allowed to stay in the baby's room. And so I'm like, well, where am I supposed to be when he can't sleep? And he's like, you have to walk. Walk the baby? Walk walk with the baby until he falls asleep. And I'm like, yeah. what if I want to sit down and nurse him? And he's like, well, you can't. And just crazy rules where I was always on edge. Like I would be sitting on the couch and he'd come out to go to the bathroom and I'd quick jump up so I wouldn't get caught sitting on the couch.
0: You have to look the way you're supposed to look. You have yeah. to come to attention.
1: Yeah, it just everything. I would get in trouble for not closing the dish soap. Not that he used dish soap because he didn't do anything, any chores, but I would get in trouble because he didn't like it when the cap was up. I would get in trouble if I moved a pile of mail. I would get in trouble if I didn't fold the towels the way he liked the towels folded. I would get in trouble if the throw pillows weren't in the order he wanted them on the couch i would get in trouble if the blankets slipped behind the couch i would get in trouble for anything and everything that wasn't exactly the way he wanted it while also working two jobs and taking care of a baby full-time and it was just astounding and he was working a job where he would get home really late 11 12 and if i wasn't awake and ready to eat dinner with him i was in trouble and then if I didn't get up early and make him a lunch, I was in trouble. I was just constantly afraid of his wrath. And he would physically punish with in various ways. And he, I would try to escape the punishment. And just like when you're a little kid and getting in trouble for something, you're like he would say, running away will only make it worse, and I'll do it harder.
0: Oh, goodness.
1: So I would have to face my punishment, essentially, whatever he wanted to do that day my son's first Christmas, my sister came to visit and she stayed with us and I was elated. I was so excited that she was building that bridge and I wanted to show her how great he was and how great our marriage was and how great our life was. And I made a facade like you wouldn't believe it was like welcome to my beautiful home and my beautiful life
0: academy award-winning actress it was
1: incredible i was so proud but she could see through the cracks because he was not an academy award-winning actor he would still do things that he thought were invisible to her like i'd be giving my son a bath she's around the corner and he thinks this is a good time to sexually assault bending over the tub and she saw that, pretended that she didn't because I would laugh it off and be like, oh, him, ha, ha, ha. You know, he just can't he, keep his hands he's, off He's sexually
0: me. assaulting you and she happens to catch him in the act. Yes. Is that what you're saying? Yes.
1: Yes, while I was bathing our child. Yes. Um,
0: yeah, well, it's never a good time and that's even no, worse. Okay. He
1: did things like that all the time. if my back was turned, it was always an opportunity to do something mean or something invasive, something perverse. And he thought nobody would notice these things, but they did.
0: At some point, do you find yourself finding moments to reach out to a domestic violence agency? Or are you reaching out for help in any possible way? Or you just don't even have time access opportunities for that?
1: At that point, I wasn't because I was cemented in the mentality that this was my choice, I chose this. I said I do. And
0: you owned it. Yeah. Your decision, you owned it and whatever came with it.
1: And what changed that was my son because he didn't make that choice. He didn't choose that life. And me making that choice for him, I felt so guilty. And this is the parts where I'll probably get a little too emotional because there would be moments when my husband would blow up at me for. The most mundane thing, and he's screaming and throwing a temper tantrum, throwing Mm -hmm. things. I would take the baby and hide with him in his room and just cry and apologize. I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry he's your dad. I'm so sorry this is your life. I'm so sorry I did this to you. Because it felt like because I made this choice, I did it to the baby. And everything was always my fault anyway. Mm -hmm. So it was a natural thought Mm -hmm. progression that any mistreatment the baby would experience.
0: He's suffering because of a decision you made. Right.
1: I got two different jobs. One of them was working at a daycare in a church, and one of them was working in our basement for the cable company billing department, working from home.
0: When you were at the daycare, was your son with you there? My
1: son was with me, and that was our only reprieve, and I made one friend because I wasn't allowed to have friends. I wasn't allowed to go anywhere without him. I wasn't allowed to do anything without him. So there was one woman who worked with me and she was a mom like me and she was my first friend in so long and I was so obsessed with her <laughs> to
0: where right. pretty precious.
1: I couldn't I am I only worked three and a half hours a day and I couldn't wait for those three and a half hours. And uh, who wants to take care of fourteen kids? Not me, but <laughs> I was so excited every day to go to work. And
0: she had access. Yes.
1: And she little by little, I started telling her more and more, but still very lightheartedly like, oh, my silly husband, he did this and he did that. And then one day it was just getting too heavy because I had stayed late to talk with her. And I, when I got home, he was still home, which was strange because he should have been at work and he was sleeping. And I said, are you supposed to be at work? And he's like, why didn't you come home and wake me up and blamed me for it and was furious with me and told me I had to quit my job because I wasn't there to make sure that he could do his job, which was a job that I had to find for him and apply for on his behalf because he couldn't do that for himself. And so I called that friend of mine and I was crying saying, I have to quit. And she's like, you do know you, you can get divorced, right? And it was the first time someone said that out loud. I thought it in my head all the time. I thought, no, I can't do that. I'd have to, you know, I have a house for the first time. I have a baby who's secure. The three dogs are here. And I made the house a home. I loved the house. I just didn't love what happened in it. But she she vocalized that, that you, you could leave. And I couldn't stop thinking about it. And everything changed on Oscar Sunday. The Oscars for me and my mom growing up were like our Super Bowl. I was obsessed with the Oscars. And that's nice. it was the year that I was positive that Leonardo DiCaprio was finally going to win his award. (laughs) And everyone who knew...
0: Was that The Revenant? The Revenant,
1: yes. And it was... Sure. So this was in 2016, in February of 2016. And everyone who knew me knew that I was completely obsessed with all of Leonardo DiCaprio's work and was so excited that he was going to win. And I just knew he was going to win. I was making a celebratory lasagna and I loved, I loved recreating the experience I had had with my mom with watching the red carpet and all of those things. And he wouldn't let me watch the pre-show. He's like, your show is not even on. I'm like, well, the red carpet is the show. And he turned it off and turned on a hockey game. And I said, no, please. Like, this is my one night. This is my one night. And I'm like, you can go to the other TV and watch your hockey. You don't even like the Oscars. And he's like, no, we're both going to be in here. And we're going to watch the hockey game when your show's not on and your show is not on. I'm like, so shortly before the official awards started, he was playing a game on his phone and I was holding the baby. And I said, could you hold the baby for a second so I could go check the lasagna? And he said, no, I'm busy. And I said, please, I don't want to hold him while trying to take something out of the oven. I can't really do that. And my son at the time, he couldn't crawl or sit up yet at all. He was eight months old, but he was a late bloomer when it came to the being stable while sitting up thing. And so my husband wouldn't even sit up all the way so i kind of put him on top of his stomach and said just hold him for a second i'm just gonna check to see if the lasagna is done and he goes fine and colton started crying immediately that's my son he started crying immediately because he didn't want to be with his dad and so i have this stupid song and dance routine that i would do to cheer him up and i started doing that backwards on my way to the kitchen and he laughed really hard and fell backward. And his head collided with my husband's nose because he lost his balance, which, yes, that hurts. But he didn't do it on purpose. But my husband slapped my eight month old son across the face to retaliate. It was like uh, a switch flipped. Suddenly, eight years of brainwashing was gone. It was as clear as day to me. I snatched that baby away from him so fast. And I said, you do not hit a child. You do not hit a child. And he's like, well, he has to learn that he can't do that. I'm like, he has to learn he can't tip over. And I, you know, for the sake of the recording, I won't scream as loud as I did, but I was screaming at him like, you can't think this is okay. You cannot think this is okay. And it was, you know, my brain was trying so hard to catch up. Like, but now he's done it to a poor, defenseless eight month old child who you are trying to protect and it was just it was night and day night and day and then the very next day i called my sister and reluctantly but steadily told her the truth about what had happened and what had been happening Mm. it was a very definitive moment because i said i think my marriage is over she said good then i told my younger sister the truth and we were in a situation with me when I was working in the basement of my house for the cable company. My, my sister, my little sister would watch my son. We took that time when I would go to pick him up as like a time to arrange covert operations, because I did have to then start getting in contact with domestic relations officers and crisis officers and all of those things yes. and yes. develop yes. a plan. Well,
0: good. good. Yes, you need a plan, safety plan, escape plan.
1: Yes. And so they, they said, do you have any evidence? Have you ever called the police? And that was such a hard question because no. And it's still that narrative always frustrates me in any abusive situation where you are essentially condemned for never having called the police, but they don't take them away when you call the police. They might for a night or two, but if you call the police and say, I'm in danger, someone's hurting me, they'll question them, they'll question you if there's significant physical evidence they might be they might be jailed short term but most times nothing happens and you have to deal with the consequences or when they come back you have to deal with their retaliation you have to deal with the retribution
0: oh my god yeah you call the police on them sure
1: and so if you call the police you're signing your own death warrant in my opinion
0: yes you've definitely lit the fuse at that point. Yeah. Because you were the one being controlled and now you're trying to take some control.
1: Yeah. And the fear of the retaliation was always worse because of course he was still, your punishment is just going to get worse and worse and worse the longer you put it off or, you know, so I could not even comprehend what he would do if I called the police Mm -hmm. for any, anything.
0: Yeah. That could have been it Um, for you.
1: Yes. So do you have any evidence? And I've, that that was when I started to realize how bad things had actually been. As my sister's like, do you have any bruises? And I said, well, I have a big one on the back of my leg, but it's not really an abuse thing. And she's like, why? How did you get it? Well, I was in the shower and he came in the shower. He always liked to come in the shower, not for anything like fun or sexy or romantic. He just liked to be in there so I couldn't be by myself. And she's like, okay. And I said, I was in the shower and he reached behind me and turned it as hot as it would go until it was scalding and held me under there while I screamed and he laughed and I hit my leg on the faucet. That's how I got the bruise. And she's like, are you serious? And I'm like, oh, is that bad? Like it wasn't wasn't there. That that was really horrible. So listening to my sister's reaction to that story, yeah, listening and and me going, oh, was that really, was that a bad thing? She's like, uh, yeah, and I just all of and then story after story would come out, and it was I would start writing them down, and it was my my book of things to remember, so I wouldn't forget all of my reasons why. Because mm. I had spent so long justifying my actions and his actions that it was really critical for me to look at it and go, That's why I'm leaving. That's why I'm leaving. But you
0: could fill up several books with what you were through.
1: Yeah absolutely there are so many things so we had a covert plan in place and he went to work one morning at 5 a.m and at 6 a.m 12 men from my sister's church and my brother-in-law showed up with boxes
0: oh that's great i had
1: one hour because i couldn't prepack. so this had been weeks of planning
0: uh. i
1: couldn't pre-pack anything so it was just what do you want you have 1 hour and i just had to point and it was so daunting i missed most of the things i probably would have wanted to keep but they're also tied to memories of a person i don't want to keep
0: why did you why was it determined you had 1 hour just for fear he might come back somehow
1: right because even like during those 2 weeks of prep he came home unexpectedly so many times when i was trying to do something and like i had i had quit both jobs cuz i had to go into hiding And I was supposed to be working from home for the cable company in the basement. And he came home and I wasn't working. I was in the shower getting ready to go to my sister's house. Okay. And because he was supposed to be at work, but he forgot his badge. So he came back and tore the shower curtain open and said, what are you doing here? And I am a terrible liar. (laughs) But I thought fast and it was driven completely by fear. I said, oh, well, you know, they were. We were actually really low volume on calls and, and we were overstaffed. And they asked for volunteers to take the night off. And I hope you don't mind, but I volunteered so I can go get Colton early. And he's like, Oh, well, then you better work a double shift next week. You know, it's got to go make up the it. money.
0: So you have this kind of like SWAT team hit the house.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: You got one hour. One hour. You're pointing to things, they're grabbing things, yeah. and throwing them in the backs of cars and trucks, I guess, SUVs, everything. Yep. I mean, you're. uh, This is like FBI is raiding the place.
1: It was so surreal. It was crazy. And I was just kind of floating. One of the people who showed up happened to be Jeff. Because when I had gotten back with my ex-husband, so he had gone through my phone and social media and deleted and blocked everybody he did not want me speaking to, specifically Jeff. Or the day that I decided I'm completely done and I'm leaving, I unblocked everybody and covertly alerted the people that I thought needed to know about what was going on. And I had mentioned to Jeff, I'm, I'm sorry. I didn't block you. He did. And I'm leaving on Friday. And he said, what time? And he showed up with a friend and a truck and helped because everybody could see what I was trying so hard to hide, but I just was in complete denial of that. Because I didn't realize how deep I was in or how bad it was until the baby came. And him doing anything like that to the baby was something I couldn't possibly allow. So they moved all of our things to my sister's cinder block basement. And the baby and I moved into a shelter and went into hiding. They hid my car in my sister's garage and Mm. my... Ex husband scoured the neighborhood. He went to every person's house that I knew and tried to be down the door. Essentially, my sister took my phone because she didn't trust my willpower, and I didn't either. Because you have that like Stockholm syndrome almost of
0: yes, yeah. I I totally understand of
1: wanting to please your abuser.
0: Yeah, that's very smart.
1: So she took my phone from me, and he yeah he flooded it every seven seconds there was a new phone call or text message for hours and after the shelter I lived in my sister's basement cinder block basement with a baby it was awful (laughs) spiders Mm -hmm. for several months and then he and I ended up living with my dad
0: your son and you yes
1: yes Uh, living with my dad and the whole time from then even until now he's not changed he's a complete nightmare i thought him moving on and getting remarried would change his wanting to control me and it hasn't and it just it doesn't matter initially when we went to court he was granted one hour a week of supervised visitation and he ended up having a much better attorney than me and had more money than me because he was being bankrolled by his parents. and now almost has 50-50 custody and treats my son very badly. There's been countless attempts to report things, but just like with me, he's very careful to hide the abuse, especially the physical abuse, and they don't remove a child without significant evidence of physical abuse. They don't remove a child for mental or emotional abuse. Or psychological abuse. they like, it's very sad and it's very difficult. And he's doing very bad things to your child, but we can't remove him for that because kids still need their father.
0: Could you tell us what he does to your son?
1: Yes. Yes, he has very stringent rules. He's also been, since day one, he's been very carefully trained not to talk to me. So he'll come home from his dad's and he'll be like, I'll say, how was your weekend? Just a simple question. How was your weekend? And he'll say, I can't talk to you about it. You have to ask my dad.
0: Okay. I got you. Yeah.
1: But he, you know, he's, he's gotten a little braver. Uh, He's seven years old now and he's gotten a little braver and, and everyone keeps assuring me. He's like, he'll figure it out. You know, he, he'll figure it out. You're not going to be trapped in this forever he's a very smart boy and he'll figure it out and he'll tell somebody the truth who really needs to hear it who can make the difference yes. because at this point my reports to cps or anything like that are met with the well you're just a, a bitter ex he needs his dad and it's not that bad and the problem is is i know how bad it is because when my son comes to me and says my dad spags me really hard all the time i know it's not a spanking i know it's a hit you until you fall over mm-hmm. because i lived it yes and he'll try to explain it to me he's like it's not a normal spanking i'm like you don't have to tell me i know what you're talking about so he has remarried and they have a child who's almost one they got married at the end of july and they're already have a very tumultuous on again off again situation that my son is repeatedly exposed to with lots of fighting lots of screaming lots of throwing things they were fist fighting each other on the freeway and almost went off the road with the kids in the car.
0: They're driving, punching back and forth? Yeah. That's pretty dangerous, needless to say.
1: Extremely. And I've enrolled him with a social worker and a mental health provider that works at his elementary school just so there's constant mandated reporters around him because he's starting to tell the truth more and more and more and saying things more and more and more because he's He's discovering stability. When we lived with my dad, he felt that stability and love and care for the first time. My dad was my co-parent for two years and we were living with him and he died unexpectedly of an abdominal aortic aneurysm when Colton was two. Uh, So sorry. Really? Two or three. It was awful.
0: Very important part of your life right there.
1: Yes, and his and it was his they were so madly in love oh. with each other. That was the hardest part about it as I got to witness my dad come back to life because after he lost my mom, he was just non existent and then he became papa oh, no. <laughs> and he he converted the dining room into a playroom and oh. got foam mats and bought him every toy he could oh. think of, just. I'd be like, oh, I really want to get him like one of those little indoor basketball hoops. And he's like, it'll be here Wednesday. <laughs> like, that's just that's just how he was with him. He was,
0: you know, dad had that. Your son had that. So, you know, yeah. it's it's not here now, but it was there. So
1: it was there. And he you know, he's seven now and he was almost three when he passed away. And he still remembers him very fondly. Good. And we don't live far away from the house I grew up in. So when we drive by, it's like, oh, it's Papa's house. It's sad. It's very sad, but we're very grateful. And shortly before my dad died is when Jeff and I reconnected again. So we're going five years with Colton having a really fantastic dad.
0: At least 50% of the time, right?
1: Yes. The biggest thing he's getting punished for is when he was three, he asked our permission to call Jeff dad. And I said, You can call him whatever you want, as long as it's not mean. You can't call him butthead, but you can call him dad. You can call him Jeff. You can call him Jeffy, Daddy Jeff, whatever you want, whatever makes your heart happy. Uh, and he said, He feels like a dad. I'd really like to call him dad. Uh, I said, Absolutely. Such
0: an honest question. Yes, uh, from a three year old. Absolutely precious. Or like they say from the mouth of babes, right?
1: Yes. Uh, so his father found out and has been punishing him relentlessly ever since. So that's four years of punishment for calling Jeff dad because he'll let it slip.
0: What does he call his biological father?
1: He calls him dad. Okay. When he's with us, he calls him daddy and then his first name. So as not to get them confused. And we refer to him that way as well. But the punishment is he'll be like, did you call Jeff dad today? Or did you call Jeff dad this week? And God bless him, this kid, he cannot lie. He tries.
0: He's like his mom.
1: But he's, yeah, he smiles when he doesn't tell the truth.
0: Oh, okay.
1: And so, but it's not funny over there. So he just, he's like, no. And it's not like it's a deliberate, malicious act of calling Jeff dad. It's, he is his dad.
0: It feels very natural.
1: He loves him like a dad. Yeah,
0: I mean, he, he feels that part of his heart
1: very natural yeah exactly so he's like okay you called him dad you're in your room for the day no food no tv no games no nothing you're grounded for the day and he's like but i didn't do it on purpose i'm working on it he's like too bad you did it and his wife has a child so their their favorite thing to do now for punishment is they'll go to a very kid-friendly place, like the community swimming pool or an indoor playground, and they make him sit and watch the entire time. No. He's not allowed to participate.
0: He's really got it—the cruel thing down, Pat. What was he? Mm-hmm. Did he ever talk about the way he grew up? This Charlie, did he ever talk about that? I mean, was—is he recreating something he experienced in his life?
1: What I witnessed, because we spent a lot of time with the with his parents. Charlie has an older brother and then his parents, his dad was in the army, and then after he left the military, he did the firefighter EMT paramedic thing, and that's why Charlie's on the road that he's on, following in his father's footsteps, and his father, after, you know, military life, was a lot more reserved and withdrawn, would disappear, he had a lot of PTSD, Uh, and then he'd come back and The only thing he ever told me about like a physical altercation is he and his dad got in a screaming match in the driveway, which turned physical, and they they got into a fist fight, and then it never, ever, ever happened again, and their relationship has never been the same. okay. But I would witness both Charlie and his dad berating and belittling his mom and laughing.
0: Oh, okay. There you go. That's how you treat a woman.
1: Right, exactly. And when he started becoming physical with me, I thought I could go to her for help.
0: Mm -hmm. kindred spirits you
1: know what should i do because he was always laughing always so charming everything was always a joke and including things he would say to me like we'd go to target and we were walking in the game aisle he's like look they made a game about you and he'd point to hungry hungry hippos
0: oh okay
1: and just laugh hysterically things like that Mm -hmm. and Mm -hmm. um he had a he had a, a very bad pornography addiction And constantly compared me to them. And when I wouldn't do what he wanted me to do and say, can we just do things normally? He would go, I go, oh, poor you. You have to have sex with your wife. And he'd go, well, look at you. You know, like just this was the narrative. Yes. And when he started getting really physically abusive, I went to his mom because she made some sort of comment like, oh, when he says stuff like that, just smack him. I looked at her like, well, no, because. He would he would do it so much worse back to me. She goes, oh, I know he hits hard, don't he? Ugh. So she already knew. She already knew because he did it to her and her and his dad did it. to her. Like it was a thing they that they were totally fine with. And I was devastated because I thought I would have an ally.
0: Part of having that relationship was this tough language, tough acting, and physical strikes that probably go right through you. You know, so. Mm-hmm. Well, he was raised around this. He was recreating mm-hmm. his past in some ways on you.
1: And they still they still all act like it's one big joke. They all just laugh about it. Everything he does is hilarious. And when we were dating, he'd go over to his parents' house at 11 p.m. and wake his mom up and say, Ma, I'm hungry. And she'd get up and make him something. So it was just a thing uh, that they do.
0: Uh, so you and Jeff became an item.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah.
0: Got to help you bail yourself out of your own life, right?
1: Exactly. He had, uh, I have so much love and admiration for him just for the fact that he was willing to tackle what I called my minefield with me because I was learning about triggers and all of those things and how you don't know they're there until you step on one. Yes. And so it's a minefield. But once you step on it, then you can put it on the map and know where it is and know how to avoid it or or approach carefully or step around it to where it's not a big explosion. And having to teach him as I was learning. So I was teaching him how to deal with my life while I was learning how to deal with my life at the same time and explaining PTSD as I was learning about PTSD and explaining triggers as I was learning about them. So we just kind of grew through it together over the last... Five years, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and um, it was five years in December.
0: Yeah, that's great. That's great. You got some mileage together. I'm happy about that.
1: Yes, it's good stuff.
0: What do you think Jeff saw in you? Because when he was around you, he was seeing a version of you,
1: Mm -hmm.
0: and he somehow saw through that to see the real you, because he's going to marry the real you, but he saw an alternate version of you, which Charlie got you to.
1: Yes, yes. Fortunately for Jeff and I, we actually did go to high school together. So he knew the untainted me.
0: Oh, I see. Um, That's right.
1: Back when I was a kid and he was two years older. We were in musical theater together in one show. He was very popular. I was not. <laughs> um, uh. So it was just this, it's really fun when we talk about it now because he says, oh, well, it's not that I didn't like you. I just didn't associate with you, <laughs> which he thought was a nice thing to say.
0: <laughs> I was like, oh,
1: wow. Um, but we both have been, he you know, he's got a story of his own. And we've both been through so much that being able to reach for our previous selves together yes. and kind of meld meld them all into one has been a really special fulfilling journey that i didn't like connecting with somebody from my pre-cancer life i i like i can't imagine not having that now yes because i i attempted before jeff and i officially started dating i attempted like a whole bunch of online dating and it was such a disaster because and what what attracted all of them initially to me was that caregiver instinct and mentality of i will take really good care of you i've done it my whole life And he was willing to actually get past that into, well, how can I take care of you? And that just blew my mind. Mm. Mm. No one's ever asked me that before, ever. He is fantastic.
0: Well, if anybody ever earned happiness, my God, (laughs) you you are at the top of that. You remind me of a lot of people who were victimized for a long time, who something happened. You know, the, the light came on, something happened and they were bound and determined to figure it out to get out and then once they got out were so generous so magnanimous about taking their story and using it like energy or using it the raw materials from their story and helping others you know and 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 what happens too is people will listen to you before they'll listen to someone else about domestic violence or dating violence or the warning signs and what abusers do because you didn't read it in the book. You know, you didn't take a class and I admire people who do all those things. Don't get me wrong, but you talking about it or you writing about it, I think if I didn't have anything, any tragedy in my life, I'd stop and I'd say, you know what? I just want to see what this woman has to say. And Stephen King couldn't make up scenes that were more horrifying than some of the ones that I've read about, or I've talked with people about, you know, people have come up to me before and after speeches and told me things. I mean, I've, I've had, I had someone come up and tell me something before a speech. I had to stop her so I could go into the men's room and splash cold water in my face, dry my face off and go up to a podium and try to speak. Mm -hmm. And it was very difficult. You know, no one would ever understand what I just heard about. And now I'm trying to get up and give you a talk for 45 minutes.
1: Right. And I want to be that roadmap for somebody. Uh, And because that's the only way that I can justify everything in my brain to make it worth it. Like I made it, but I can help somebody else make it too. Or prevent them from getting there in the first place to the beginning. Because, oof.
0: Thank you for joining me on the When Dating Hurts podcast and telling me the many indescribable, scary at times, cruel twists and turns of your story. And you're such a a wonderful, deep, uh, generous, magnanimous. I'm trying to think. I got to get my thesaurus. But you give, 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 and have, and you still do. And I'm just so happy that all the things you did for your mom and dad and unfortunately for this Charlie character, but you did it with the right spirit and you put up with just horrific behavior for so long and didn't really think about yourself. You're like the most selfless person I think I've ever met in my life. And just wonderful for me to meet you. Wonderful honor. So I just want to thank you for, for talking with me and spending so much time and And your current chapter of your life with Jeff and your son and daughter is great. And it's only going to get better. It just is. You know, it's just going to get better and better. You're writing now. You're doing things. You're blossoming. You have friends. Hey, that's something new. You know, you have friends. (laughs) Thank you so much. I mean, you really are a wonderful, uplifting person. And you're taking all of us with you. Thank you so much. Thank you. Do you have anything you want to leave us with here at the end? Any bit of wisdom or anything?
1: I guess I just always cling to the thought that no matter how dark it gets, light is possible. And there's always somebody who's been there first. I can help you find your way out.
0: You definitely are a helper. You will help so many people by sharing your story however you do it. You're such a bright light. And I envy those who spend their time with you. It's wonderful. (laughs) Thank you. I really do. This is the end of part two, the final part of my conversation with Aaron. Thank you for listening to the When Dating Hurts podcast. I'd like to thank my guests and my listening audience for their support. It is clear our listeners look for and play survivor episodes above all others. They get caught up between the forces of good and evil all the time pulling for the moment a victim becomes a survivor. I am open to other victims and survivors who want to join with me on the When Dating Hurts podcast. We can shine a bright light on the epidemic of dating and domestic violence, we can improve lives and save some innocent people from a lifetime of broken dreams. If you want to tell your victim or survivor story, please contact me at Bill Mitchell at WendatingHurts.com. That's Bill Mitchell at WendatingHurts.com.